Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. First and foremost, it is that time of year where we get into polls. Oh, the polls that tell us what we liked, what we didn't like, whether it's music, whether it's, you know, premieres, prime ministers. And I'll tell you what, one came out talking about the fact that nearly one out of every two Canadians wants a federal election in 2023. They are done waiting. Richard Zussman, Global BC reporter based in the legislature, joining me. Richard, happy holidays. Happy holidays, Rob. Thanks for having me. Well, let's get into this poll because I know that there's a lot of people that are up to uh, their eyebrows in frustration with a number of things that have come out from this government over the last calendar year. I'm a little surprised that nearly half of Canadians are ready and want a federal election. Yeah, interesting. It's an Ipsos poll that was done for Global News, Rob. you got to remember, if half of Canadians want an election, the other half do not want an election. And you have to look at where the numbers are coming from here. And a majority of British Columbians say they want an election. But if you look to Ontario and Quebec, which are riding rich provinces, a majority of those there, in Quebec's case, it's 60 percent do not want an election. And the reason this conversation is happening is because Justin Trudeau is currently governing with a minority government. He has this deal in place with the NDP, which will keep him in power until the next election date if he wants. But the prime minister has the unique ability here to trigger an election if he would like. Although the poll indicates half of Canadians want this election, a vast majority of them don't expect Trudeau to call this election. And We've been elections out here in B.C., Rob. If you just look at it, in 2022, we had the municipal elections. In 2021, there was a federal election. In 2020, there was a provincial election. In 2019, there was a federal election. In 2018, there was a municipal election. In 2017, (laughs) there was a provincial election. So, you know, there may be an indication that people want to see some change. But I also think there's a sense that we have gone to the polls so many times that it may be worth some stability because it's scheduled now. We're not going to have an election in 2023 in any of the uh, municipal, provincial, or federal realms, and we'll have to wait to that provincial election in 2024. But we'll see. Early elections happen, uh, although, you know, yes, half, but you have to remember there's that other half that just don't want the election. You know, Richard, one thing that I was, you know, thinking about today is how many years has he been in power? Speaking of Justin Trudeau, time must fly because it's 10 years that he's been the leader of the Liberal Party, eight years as prime minister. That to me was like, wow, time does fly. But as you look at this Ipsos poll to get back onto this one, a lot of 18 to 34 year olds, nearly two out of three young Canadians are the ones that want to stimulate this election. What is the disconnect there? Yeah, that was interesting to me because... You know, we'll remember that Trudeau rode to the prime minister's job on the backing of young Canadians. Mm-hmm. He was able to engage with people who had never gone to vote before. They were engaged in the political process like never before. You'll remember back in 2015, some of the big events that Trudeau was holding that had, you know, new faces to politics, a diversity, but also um, 
you know, young faces that came out and felt that he was speaking to them around issues about housing and transit and childcare and the environment and climate change. And there seems to be a bit of a disconnect there that politicians promise things, you see them, you have great hope in them, and then over time uh, you feel disappointed that it felt there was so much energy. And, and the challenge here is that, you know, Promising huge things is easy. Delivering them is much harder. And when you deliver, the things don't feel as big as when you promise them. And I think that's why young people may feel, well, let's go back to the polls. Who they're going to vote for, though, is the question, right? Yes. Is Jagmeet Singh comes out in this poll looking like he uh, is the most respected leader, but the NDP struggle in these elections, and the, for them to form government is hard to imagine. So are they looking towards the Conservatives and Pierre Polyevre? I just don't see that he attracts the sort of young voters that Trudeau did in 2015. So, yeah, it stood out to me like it did to you, that the young people in this poll are asking for this election, but I'm just not sure what that means for you know which party they'd be interested in seeing and how that could shape who we have as the government in this country. Uh, one more for you, Richard, and I just want to talk about the poll as a whole. You know, end of the year, we obviously want to see, we want to collect data, we want to get analytic to see where we stand. How much merit do you put into polls like this? I know Ipsos is one of the bigger con- uh, the bigger poll takers in all of, you know, poll taking, but how much merit do you put into a poll like this when it comes to your government? I don't think it's a question people think a lot about. Do you want an election? So I don't put a whole lot of merit in it. If you're asking someone a question about something they think about, that they go to the dinner table and discuss with their friends and family or go to the bar and have a chat about, then, you know, I think that would be a poll that would stand up. Do you want COVID measures to return? Or do you want more funding for childcare? Things that I think people converse about. I don't think, Rob, people are sitting around tables this holiday season, British Columbia, and saying, do I want an election? So you fill out the poll online or you do it over the phone and you're sort of surprised and you think to yourself, yeah, maybe I would go for an election. So I don't put a lot of stock into it because these aren't the things that really matter to people. It's those questions about health care, the economy, public safety. How do I feel about those things? Those are the polls I think that really reflect how people feel. It's those issues that people think a lot about. Do I care about this? So Yes, it's, a, it's fun for you and I to talk about. I think thinking about elections is great fodder. But honestly, I think the government and, and even the opposition parties are focused on the issues. What issues matter to people and how do we connect with them and, and produce solutions on those issues? Wonderful insight, Richard. I'll let you get back to the holidays. I know you might have a couple hours here and there tucked away, but thank you for making time for me today. For you, Rob, always. My pleasure. Have a great holiday. <laughs> All right, thank you. Uh, Dan Mateg, the president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, has some information that's probably relevant to you as you're driving around. Whether it's over the past couple of days, you've been doing some watching of the numbers. Boy, am I going to get gouged a little bit more? Or do you feel that gas prices are in a pretty good spot right now? I mean, leading up to the new year, we're going to see a little bit of bouncing around. Dan, good afternoon. How are you today? Fine, Rob, man. Good to hear from you. Thanks for calling. Oh, it's my pleasure. Let's talk about gas leading up to the new year. Uh, Is this a trend? Is this a time of year where we see a little bit of a spike or is this a cooling off and stable period? Well, it tends to be a bit of a bit of both. And and that's not because I'm hedging my bets here. It's just that uh, we have a year unlike anything we've seen in the past. And if you have gas prices having hit their peak back in June, stayed there pretty much until October and then began their slow but uh, 
noticeable descent. You know, I mean, we were paying in the 240 range before things have sort of come down to the mid dollar sixty uh, range, and I think that's you know dollar seventy point nine right now. Uh, possible penny drop by uh, by Thursday. I think this is pretty much a tug of war in the market. Now, the supply picture continues to be uh, questionable, uh, and that is to say that you know global supplies of just about everything are on the tighter side, but uh, demand uh, is not quite there. And so you now have a, c- a scenario playing out where uh, every day uh, markets will start in the morning, say you know showing a rally for oil or gasoline or diesel, and by the afternoon that rally f- fizzles. Conversely, and we saw this last week. You know, the morning starts off dreadfully low for the product, and suddenly by the afternoon it surges ahead. I think markets are really, uh, you know, in a bit of a quandary. Uh, I don't go as far as what OPEC has said about them, that they're dysfunctional. Mm. But sooner or later, I think uh, there's going to have to be reconciliation of the idea that demand globally for oil and for other products is going to continue to rise. And uh, sooner or later, uh, you know, COVID lockdowns in China will end. I think that's coming, you know, pretty clear. Uh, you know, the Fed won't continue to raise interest rates. Uh, and the, the, you know, the excuses have been used to say, well, uh, you know, things are going to be really bleak in the next several months may start to wane a little bit. With that, we could see prices going right back up by February, March and April. That's not good news. No, it isn't. <laughs> Unfortunately, I think dollar ninety to $2 a liter is a reality we're going to have to come to grips with, especially as we head towards uh, more seasonably warmer weather, especially in the April to uh, October uh, range, not just because of the conversion from uh, summer blends, uh, winter blends of gasoline to summer, but, you know, increasing carbon taxes and, of course, uh, significant demand. Um, you know, we, we ran short a couple of times over the past few months. Looks like we're getting back on track, but that's, uh, you know, it, it's, it can be day-to-day, a refinery south of the border, uh, you know, or disruption on the pipeline, or some geopolitical events can set prices on a tear. They're likely to go up more dramatically than they are to fall as dramatically uh, because of the sort of, uh, uh, you know, the trigger switch almost uh, nature of, of markets these days. So, Dan, full disclosure, we are a Tesla family in the Faye household. We're also a hybrid family. It uh, was an intriguing article that you wrote a couple of weeks back at affordableenergy.ca. The problem with electric vehicles, um, part of it's political, but part of it is, you know, uh, well, actually, I don't want to steal your thunder here. There's a number of reasons why this is a little bit of a challenge. It's a challenge because the world isn't, hasn't made the transition to building these things on a scale uh, that we uh, that we can use uh, as successfully and as reliably as internal combustion engines. Uh, we need to build out our infrastructure. You need three or four site C dams to be able to uh, manage to accommodate 100% electrification of our entire grid, and with that, of course, EVs. We have to also recognize that uh, short of subsidies, uh, these vehicles would not be purchased. Short of mandates, these vehicles would likely not be purchased. And, you know, maybe it's a bit of bias on my behalf. I served public relations for Toyota Canada some 30 years ago before I was a member of parliament. Toyota, the largest manufacturer of automobiles in the world, is saying that's not the future. And I, I tend to believe they're, they're right. I think there are other opportunities, hydrogen, whatnot. And, of course, they've made quite a, uh, they've made quite a, a name for themselves, introducing a power that I recall. You used, we called it the Tsunami. I introduced one of the prototypes here in Canada, or the concept car. You know it today is the Prius. Mm-hmm. 30 years later, it's, uh, yeah, and you're, you talk hybrids, that I think is the trendsetter, and that's really the, uh, the base for all you know, future vehicles, I think. And you need that kind of eclectic variety of energy sources when you want to get your vehicle 
to go from point A to point B. Electric EVs are great. They're fun to drive. Love the torque on them. Uh, but they're no darn good when it comes to the kind of weather we just saw over the past week and a half in most of North America. You know, one thing that my wife said to me is she said in cold weather, the battery immediately loses about 80 kilometers. When we talk about, you know, a full charge bringing about, what, 320, 340. She said, man, the temperature dipped and all of a sudden I was about 250 on a full charge. And I said, I'm not a scientist. I don't know much about that. But there's got to be a method to that madness. Well, look, you drive a hybrid, so do I. Yes. Uh, my Ford Escape, uh, you know, at this time of year is pushing maybe nine, 8.9, uh, you know, liters for 100 kilometers. Um, during, the, during the summer, when the weather's warmer, it's down to six and a half, seven. So, you know, battery is battery. The technology is, has not developed, and perhaps we're dealing with more issues of physics than we are, uh, you know, uh, wishful thinking. But we're not at the stage yet where the, the EV can replace or displace the uh, internal combustion engine. But remind yourselves, of course, of the fact that what's involved in building an EV is far more damaging to the environment than most, I think, realize. And the ability for us to go and, you know, mine the products that are needed. Good luck trying to get a mining permit of any type in Canada, much less the cost of doing so in Canada. We have to be very careful that we're not unwittingly giving this over to countries like China, which are only too happy to partake in our business, but uh, are using coal uh, and other forms of, uh, of, of uh, damaging environmental uh, elements in order to produce uh, the various rare earth minerals, the cobalt, the lithium, the graphite, etc. So at the end of all of this, uh, maybe Canada could sell a bit more natural gas to Asia. I think that would be a bit of a trade-off. I think that'd be a good trade-off, to be honest with you. And I know that there's a few people looking up at the sky saying, damn you for saying that, but I understand <laughs> the business of energy as well. Dan, happy holidays, and thank you for this. I'm going to go start rolling my quarters, knowing that that $2 mark is probably where we're going to land. And thank you for your time today. I'll be joining you. Have a great new year. Take care, Rob. (laughs) All right. Let us go right now to the fine phones. It it is hour two. The founder and director of Avignon Etiquette, Susie Fossati, kind enough to join me. Susie, good afternoon. Hello. Good afternoon. How are you? I'm okay. I just got to stop talking over people, especially especially <laughs> legendary legendary broadcasters of this fine station. Um, you know, we just got through the holidays, Susie. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but um, yes. certain gifts, <laughs> certain gifts, Susie, missed the mark. And uh, my first question to you on a number of etiquette mannered questions is: What do you do when you get the gift that maybe doesn't uh, tickle your fancy? Right. And I think that the first thing we want to do is how do we acknowledge in the moment the gift? So, um, you know, we're, we're opening gifts and, you know, it's our turn to open the gift. And, you know, we always want to start off by appearing very, very neutral. It's actually um, pre-planning, if you will. So we want to make sure that we kind of keep a very neutral face, not happy, not sad, so that when we open the gift, we always look excited, right? We always look very happy because we have to keep in mind, first and foremost, it's a gesture that's most important, right? The gift is always secondary, but the thoughtfulness behind someone giving us a gift is what's first and foremost. And so for that, in and of itself alone, is why we want to look very, very pleased, right? So um, very happy. Thank you so much. We always want to acknowledge the gesture. Very kind of you. Um, you know, if we don't like the gift, we don't mention the gift, but we always mention the gesture. So facial expression is one. 
That's easy yeah. to do when you're opening up maybe a sweater that isn't your size or doesn't look the way you want it to look. But what would we do at the dining table? Because all of a sudden somebody plops down that tofurkey and maybe tofurkey is not my jam. How do we get around the food element of this? Right. So the good thing about the dining table is that there's always so many other things, hopefully, that accompany the turkey, whether it's a great side, you know, uh, or another dish, a salad, a wonderful salad. Mm -hmm. There's always going to be something we want to try, right? And unless we're allergic to or we have um, dietary restrictions, the rule is one bite to be polite, right? So we always want to try something um, and, you know, Take, you know, try it and take more of what you do like, right? That always shows that we're at least engaging in the meal and, uh, you know, and that we're trying different things, right? They, they always put in a lot of effort. So for that in and of itself alone, we want to be respectful. And, th- and that's always the key, right, to everything. When we talk about etiquette, it's always about being kind, considerate and respectful first and foremost. Susie, I promise you, I could talk to you for several (laughs) segments on this because I am fascinated by the industry that you're in because there are so many things that I've always had questions about. Like, for example, we just got through the holidays. What do you do with that one uncle that just always seems to take over the conversation and take over the room? Is it just as simple as stepping out and getting away and taking a deep breath? Or how would you handle something like that etiquette-wise? Right. So in a situation like this, it's actually up to the host to take charge, right? And so if you're the host, you'd want to make sure that you're sort of engaging and directing the conversations at the table. And if you do see, you know, that someone, you know, we're talking politics all of a sudden or one of those uh, taboo things, right? That you're like, you know what, I'd love to continue this conversation later. But um Tell me about that gift that you received or tell me about these great potatoes. How did you, what's the recipe behind this? Is there trouble? So you kind of want to divert, right? So, but it is up to the host to do so. And if the host, you know, um, is away, perhaps someone else could take that initiative and just try to redirect that conversation. We always want our kids to look good publicly as well. It's a yeah. guil- it's, it's a guilty element that all parents share, or at least a majority of parents share. I shouldn't put that on everybody. When can you start teaching your children etiquette? Oh, I mean, right away, right? It's always, I always say, role modeling is the first thing we can do, right? Whether they um, are, are infants, it's always role modeling. And always the first words, right? Please, thank you. I mean, it's never too soon to start with simple, simple little things, right? Obviously, things in small pieces, I mean, and at timing, uh, you know, when it comes to holding cutlery, for example, there's those can't really be learned until you're like after five, six years old. Um, But words and things like that, that's okay. And my final one for you, I I appreciate this, Susie. Let's talk business. I love that you guys offer at Avignon Etiquette, not just things that will help you in the home, but things that can help you in the workplace as well. What is a piece of etiquette that a lot of people forget? And, and, And I say this only because the world has changed a little bit and we're much more distant at work. Some of us still have to wear masks in certain facets of work. Uh, Is there something that you've noticed in the last year or two that has kind of popped up as maybe a new etiquette piece? You know, I'd say dress codes have certainly something that I've noticed that have sort of relaxed a little bit. Mm. Um, You know, it used to be that, I mean, if we're talking business, people, you know, over the past two years would come in um, and it was, you know, Friday casual was everyday casual. 
And right now, you know, whilst it's still, I'd say, less formal, meaning that we're not wearing, if we're in an office, for example, then we're not wearing the full suit. But I think, you know, if we follow the rule of thumb that it's always better to be slightly overdressed than underdressed or that we want to dress for the position that we want, not the one we have. With that in mind, you know, even though it is still casual, you know, take that time to just make sure you still have that polish, right? And perhaps, you know, if a client suddenly walks in or something, you immediately have, you know, um, a blazer to put over what you've got on or uh, a nice pair of shoes, a polish for the shoes. You still want to have that professionalism, right? That That's always here to stay, regardless if it's a little bit more casual or less casual. Um, we're still dressing for success. I, I think it's fantastic. I would recommend heavily our listeners go to avignonetiquette.com. I'm going to post a link on my social media. Thank you for your time, Susie. I think, like I said, I'm completely enamored with what you do. Confidence, character, class, charisma. I think you've got a little bit of everything. Thank you for joining me today, Susie. Thank you so much. With pleasure. My daughter jumped out of bed early yesterday morning because, man, she wanted to do the old Boxing Day show. That was her thing. She was going to wake up early, and she was going to get to as many malls, as many stores as possible. Haven't even had the chance to ask her how it went, but maybe to ask the broader question, we bring on Bruce Winder, retail analyst, who uh, would probably have his finger on the pulse of said Boxing Day. Bruce, good afternoon. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. It's my pleasure. How did Boxing Day go? I mean, I don't know what the early returns would be, but was there hustle and bustle? What, what, what are you hearing? Yeah, I'm hearing some mixed uh, results on on Boxing Day. And it's we have to remember, it's sort of Boxing Week now, right? Boxing Week and yes. a half. Because Boxing Week, the sales really started, you know, before December 25th. But what I heard about, you know, yesterday is that it was it was pretty good. You know, it wasn't too bad. It's going to vary a lot by region, you know, with around the country, because whoever got hit the most with the snow, some people may have stayed home, but in some areas where the snow wasn't as bad, it was pretty brisk in terms of retail traffic. I always think to myself, boxing days where the first person that, you know, sleeps overnight gets the 80-inch TV for 100 bucks or whatever exactly. it is. But what are some of the other things that maybe over the course of this week, people might be able to uh, get that diamond in the rough? Is there anything we should be looking for? Well, what, there's a bit of a trend this holiday where people are buying a little, a little more of the essential items, so a little less on the discretionary side. But Boxing Day, Boxing Week has always been about, you know, a couple of things. One is people get gift cards or money under the tree on the 25th, and or people say, hey, I'm going to go treat myself from all this holiday stress and go buy something for myself. Those are usually the two big areas, right, with that Boxing Week usually uh, sells to. Do you feel like, I know I do a lot of my pre-Christmas shopping online because I'd much rather have it delivered to my house than have to battle the masses, but do you find that Boxing Day and Boxing Week is still that one tried, tested, and true week where, you know what, damn it, I'm going to go into the malls, I'm going to battle the crowds because I want to physically see it, touch it, taste it, I want to get it done? Yeah, you know what, sometimes it really is, especially like yesterday, right, the actual Boxing Day but more and more of it is moving online now. You look at Black Friday, Cyber Monday obviously was online, but even Black Friday now and Boxing Day, you know, it's a lot of people just use online because it's just so much easier. But having said that, you're right. For certain items, maybe certain stores, certain age groups, they want to get out there. They want to get in the mall, touch and feel product, part of the atmosphere. 
Do you find that um, we're in the midst of a major shift when it comes to our shopping? I mean, I know, trust me, online shopping is nothing new, but with COVID and the pandemic and people getting used to truly being at home for long stretches, do you find that we've actually turned the corner? I mean, is there a number out there that you could say, um, like, for example, 70% of the people now stay home? Is there something analytically that we could look at and say, wow, that's a shift? Well, the biggest shift I could say is that we probably went from about 5% to 7% of online shopping, you know, and it doubled for a while, but then it probably has settled down post-pandemic to about, you know, call it 10%. So it's still a pretty big shift. It's not as big as brick and mortar, but it's still a meaningful shift. Now, what's happened since we've sort of loosened things up with the pandemic, consumers have sort of had a bit of a renaissance with brick and mortar. Mm. So it's kind of flattened out a bit, but it's going to get back on the steady growth train, I think as we go through the next few years. I noticed that there's a couple of stores right now in my neighborhood, and I'm not going to you know, call them out by saying this, but it seems like all year long they have the going out of business sale. And then the next oh. year there's a going out of business sale. And they've been going out of business for like three, four years. Is that, oh a, is that a troubled marketing campaign? What do you make of that? That's a very troubled marketing campaign because consumers are wise to that, yes. right? And that's almost, you know, it's a joke, right? But you know what? There's just, you can't do that. Consumers are too smart. But sadly, there are a number of businesses who truly will go out of business uh, after this fall because it was a bit of a tough fall for folks. And, you know, there's no government supports now. And the consumer's facing a number of headwinds, everything from inflation to interest rates rising. So you know what, it's going to be a little tough on some of those retailers who are struggling. You talk about the retailers and you bring up a really good point, Bruce, that there was that government support. And I think a lot of that was just to keep people's heads above water. But now that that water's run dry, there's a lot of you know businesses in a, multiple, a multitude of sectors that were playing catch up pretty much since that help from the government. And some of them aren't going to make it to shore, are they? They're not because the world's changed a lot since, you know, 2019 and maybe what worked for them before barely doesn't work now. And they also have a lot more debt. So not all of it, you know, was grant. Most of it was was loans. Right. So they have to pay all that back at high, high interest rates. Now the consumers change. The consumers frugal. It's hard to get people, you know, input costs have went up. So there's just not a lot of margin there for a lot of folks to survive anymore. Yeah, I, you know, I owned a restaurant back in 2016, and when we were all said and done and we, you know, licked our wounds and all that, I looked back and said, man, I don't know if I would do that again, because you don't realize until maybe you've got your feet in the sand, but there's not a lot of support out there. I mean, there's a lot of information, but people that are willing to physically roll up their sleeves and help you, I mean, I, I find that to be tough even back then. I can't even imagine what it would be like on this side of the pandemic. Yeah, and, and that sector, as you know more than anyone, the restaurant sector is one of the toughest sectors to make a goal of it. Yep. But, uh, yeah, it's not for the faint of heart. There's a lot of TV commercials that romanticize as having your own business, and it looks easy. Boy, is it ever hard, you know. And, uh, sadly, we're going to see some of that happen over the next little while. Ah. Well, I appreciate the insight on Boxing Day, and thank you for letting me know. i still got a couple of days. I might be able to find the odd trinket. But thank you for this, and happy holidays, Bruce. Yeah, you too. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on the show. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.